Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, Daniel, introduction number two. Well, as we continue in our extensive preparation to study the book of Daniel, I would like to reiterate that the reason for so many commentaries that have been written on Daniel that vary so wildly in their interpretations and in their conclusions is because of each commentator's fundamental theology. And the preeminent theology of modern era commentators has been that Daniel is a wonderful piece of fiction. It was written by a pious Jew about 165 BC. Therefore, the so-called predictions that Daniel makes in his book were actually events that had already happened. The writer merely wrote in the literary style of biblical prophecy, designed to make it appear to the reader that in fact this had been written centuries earlier, thus fancifully making Daniel a seer of the future, a prophet. Now the ripple effect of this belief upon Christian doctrines is serious and its tentacles spread out in many directions. Last week we found ourselves faced with the question why Daniel remains as part of our Bible if in fact it's been determined by our greatest Bible academics and the majority of our Christian seminaries to be a forgery. But even more, it's self-evident that if Daniel's a forgery, then even Christ was taken in. Because he quotes Daniel as scripture by name in Matthew 24.15. So when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand this illusion, that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. Messiah's own words. Further, Daniel's concepts are sprinkled around the, the New Testament and are foundational to the book of Revelation. So if Daniel is false, that makes Jesus highly suspect. And it essentially des destroys any credibility for the reliability of the book of Revelation. So there is a great deal we must explore just to achieve a sufficient baseline understanding before we can legitimately begin to study Daniel. Now stick with me. But without the knowledge we're gaining in this introduction, studying Daniel won't be nearly as fruitful. So is there some strong evidence, perhaps even a dagger through the heart, that proves that Daniel is indeed a work of fiction. In a word, no. The controversy and the skepticism stems from the inherent nature of theology itself and especially of systematic theology. These are humanly devised systems that requires agreement between God's nature and our human logic and, whole, and uh, reason. If certain words and passages and chapters and even entire books of the Bible don't meet this test of human intellect, then they are deemed as false or an error. Beginning in the early 1700s, when the European Enlightenment burst upon the scene, 
the fundamental biblical Judeo-Christian concepts of divine miracles, the supernatural, and of predictive prophecy, all these came under fierce attack until today. All three of those concepts are soundly rejected within many Christian academies. Therefore, the bulk of biblical commentaries written since the 1800s, written primarily by scholars from the so-called biblical criticism school of discipline, begin with the firm, unwavering premise that there are no such things as miracles, prophecy, or even the spirit realm. Now, if none of you had ever read any of the Daniel commentaries, or you had never heard church teaching on Daniel or Revelation, or you had never read any of the many books and novels written about the end times, we could probably just start studying Daniel without any significant introduction like what we're having. However, almost all of you have. Therefore, my task and what I must ask of you is to be ready to undo some of what you assume you know about this extraordinarily pivotal Bible book that's been so horribly miscast and mischaracterized. And what has caused this problem is modern systematic theology, especially as it regards end times doctrines called eschatology. And this is the subject of the book of Daniel. Therefore, before we can intelligently and honestly undertake a study of Daniel, we need to be familiarized with certain aspects of systematic theology, something every Christian denomination adheres to in one form or another. Otherwise, we wind up in the same untenable position we do when we study the latest books of the Bible, the New Testament, before having good understanding about the earlier and the foundational books of the Bible, the Old Testament. We have no context. We have no historical or spiritual context for understanding them. Thus today we are confronted with a confusion of theological doctrines that run off in all directions. So how do we get here from there? See, this is part of what we have to learn so that we are prepared not only for a proper study of Daniel, but for a proper application of Daniel. The worldview, and thus the beliefs and practices of Christianity, have undergone substantial transformations since its founding as a sect of Jews who followed the Galilean rabbi Yeshua of Nazareth, believing him to be the Messiah that God promised the Hebrew people. The first many thousands of believers were Jews. But following Yeshua's death on the cross, the gospel message was taken to the Gentiles. And its acceptance accelerated. And Gentile church leadership emerged, but with a Hellenistic, as opposed to Jewish, worldview. That is, generally speaking, the world of Yeshua's day and for 400 years afterward was a Roman world. A world that primarily spoke Greek and it demanded that members of the Roman Empire, which represented most of the known world at that time, adhere to a Greco-Roman culture that has since been given that academic name, Hellenism. 
However, in the midst of this vast desert of Hellenistic culture, there was an oasis of Jews in the Holy Land who held on to their own indifferent Hebrew culture, although it was by now badly damaged and waning in its purity. Thus, when Greek-speaking citizens of the Roman Empire began leading segments of this new Jesus movement that was at first called the Way, they naturally approached it from their Roman worldview. That is, they injected Roman culture into it, mostly unconsciously. Paul was the leading Jewish missionary. He was tasked with the job of taking the good news to the people of the Roman Empire. Thus he adopted techniques, he adopted terminology that enabled him to communicate, to connect with mostly non-Jews who had very little familiarity with Hebrew culture. It was easier for Paul to do that than for the rest of Jesus' Jewish disciples because Paul wasn't born and raised in the Holy Lands like they were. He came from Tarsus. He came from a city in the Western Roman Empire. So he was steeped in Hellenistic culture. It was comfortable for him to operate within it. Now at first, the bulk of these non-Jews who accepted Christ were folks known as God-fearers. God-fearers. It was a term meaning that they had adopted the God of Israel worshipped alongside the diaspora Jews in synagogues of various Roman towns and cities. However, they generally did not have any desire to become national Jews. They remained Gentiles. They merely adopted Yehovah, now Yeshua, as their God and Savior. Now the book of Acts reveals the deep tensions that erupted between the Jewish faction of the Jesus movement that was based in Jerusalem and run by Yeshua's half-brother James over and against the Gentile faction based out in the Roman provinces, the group of congregations that Paul had established. But within 30 years after Messiah's death, so many Gentiles had joined the fold and they were located in the Greek-speaking Roman Empire that they wanted more authority within the movement. They wanted what began as a Jewish sect to morph. They wanted it to morph into something that worked more in line with their existing Gentile Hellenistic culture. It seems they got their way sooner than later. James was executed in 62, maybe 63 AD. And that greatly weakened the Jerusalem-based leadership. But then eight years later, Jerusalem was decimated. The temple was destroyed by the Romans in reprisal for a Jewish rebellion against them. The Messianic Jewish leadership of the way in Jerusalem was essentially dissolved. And so the leaders of the various so-called churches in the Roman Empire, they became the new de facto leaders of Christianity. Rapidly their goal became to distance themselves from as much Jewish cultural influence as possible. So early in the 2nd century AD, 
assemblies of Gentile believers began calling themselves Christians. An offshoot of the Greek word for Messiah, which is Christos. As opposed to the first Jerusalem-based believers who called themselves either the Way or Nazarenes. And these Gentile Christian leaders were less inclined to have association with the Jewish synagogues. They began meeting instead in house churches. Some grew in number sufficiently to where a building was needed. So about 200 AD, somewhere in there, we have the first evidence of dedicated non-Jewish houses of worship that we could probably rightly characterize as churches. Now, early in the 4th century AD, the newest Roman emperor, Constantine, converted to Christianity. And at the Christian Council of Nicaea, what had been a mixed bag of ad hoc policies and traditions developed by the many independent church assemblies, they became codified into a list of firm doctrines that at that time they called them canons that all churches located in the Roman Empire were expected to adhere to. Thus we have the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. One of the fundamental doctrines was that one had to be a Gentile to have membership. Thus while a Jew, theoretically, could join the church, they had to essentially give up their Jewishness. The biblical feasts were outlawed. Passover was eliminated. It was replaced by something called Easter. The Sabbath was abolished. And instead, Sunday worship was adopted as the legal requirement. The Greek New Testament, first created a little bit after 200 AD, was adopted as the authorized Christian Bible. And the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament was kind of pushed to the background, rendered as generally irrelevant because it was too Jewish. And yet, despite all this, and most likely because it became the official religion of the Roman Empire thanks to Constantine, Christianity spread like an uncontrollable wildfire. It was amazing. This essentially fulfilled a number of prophecies that predicted that Gentiles would become the vehicle to spread the gospel of Messiah to the four corners of the earth. So despite the church's hateful position towards the Jewish people, the dismissal of the Old Testament, the formation of doctrines that bore little resemblance to biblical biblical commandments, and a tendency to turn the Jewish Yeshua into the Gentile Jesus, we can say that with the rarest exception, the Great Commission was carried out. The good news has now been taken to our entire planet. And it was brought about almost exclusively by the Gentile Church. Well, from around the 6th century AD to the late 1800s, The primary aims of Christianity were to inject Christianity into the political realm of nations and states and to ward off any threat of religious competition 
as with Islam. Making new believers was usually, with only a few exceptions, kind of a back-burner goal. But since the late 1950s and early 60s, there's been a decided transformation within Christianity, whereby special attention has been paid to evangelism. The so-called Jesus movement sprung from this, and like all faith-based movements, it had its negative and its positive effects on Christianity. First of all, every effort was made to make God more attractive to the unwashed. Jesus evolved from our Lord and Master to our buddy and life's co-pilot. The definition of sin became blurred and it became personally tailored to suit each individual. The concept of once saved, always saved became popularized. And it seems that the Lord's main purpose was reduced to helping us realize our personal dreams. Second of all, worship services tended to de-emphasize holiness and reverence. And instead emphasized casualness, familiarity, social connection. Third, the long-standing doctrine of replacement theology was challenged when Israel returned as a nation of Jews in 1948. So the church pushed back and made it clear that Christianity was indeed Gentile in its nature, that Jewishness had no place within it, and that even though Israel had returned, it was essentially Christian Bible land that had been temp- it was being temporarily manned by Jews for the benefit of the church. Thus, we are a New Testament church to the exclusion of the Old Testament. To venture into the Old Testament in any serious way was an affront to one's Christian faith and a danger that could damage or even turn us away from our relationship with Jesus. Well, the church again went through a dramatic growth spurt as a result of this approach. The Billy Graham Crusades used those principles I just enumerated to draw enormous crowds to overflowing stadiums in America and in foreign lands. Thousands would come forward to accept Christ on those terms. We've been living in an era that we could fairly call evangelical Christianity for three quarters of a century or so depending on how one would define it. It has had its good points and its not so good points. It represents the golden age of systematic theology. But something within the last decade or so is happening. Another transition within Christianity seems to be underway. And it reflects the fulfillment, or at least the last stages of a process of fulfilling another prophecy by Yeshua. Luke 21, verses 24 through 26 says this. Some will fall by the edge of the sword, others will be carried into all the countries of the Goyim, the the nations, the Gentile nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the age of the Gentiles has run its course. 
There will appear signs in the sun, moon, and stars and on earth. Nations will be in anxiety. They'll be at bewilderment at the sound and surge of the sea. People faint with fear at the prospect of what's overtaking the world. For the powers in heaven will be shaken. Later, the Apostle Paul would frame this in a slightly different way in which he explained why there was even to be an age of the Gentiles. He said so in Romans 11, 25 and 26. For brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed but is now revealed so that you don't imagine more you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness and it's in this way that all Israel will be saved. As the Tanakh says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So the time of the Gentiles was to be a period when Gentile Christianity went global but it was also to be the means by which God would save Israel. What an amazing thing. But not only was a period of Gentile dominance prophesied, but also what this era of the Gentiles would transition into was prophesied long ago by Zechariah. Open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page... 777. How about that for a number today? Zechariah, chapter 8. A message came from Adonai Zebaot. And Adonai Zebaot says, I am extremely jealous on Zion's behalf, and I am jealous for her with great fury. Adonai says, I am returning to Zion. I will live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called Truth City. Adonai Zebaot's mountain. The mountain of the Holy One. Adonai Zebaot says, Old men and old women will once again sit in the open places of Jerusalem, each one with a cane in his hand because of their great age. The city's open places will be full of boys and girls playing there. Adonai Zebaot says, This may seem amazing to the survivors in those days, but must it also seem amazing to me? Says Adonai Zebaot. Adonai Zebaot says, I'll save my people from lands east and west. I'll bring them back. They'll live in Jerusalem. They'll be my people. I'll be their God with faithfulness and justice. Adonai Zebaot says, Take courage. You are hearing only now. In these days, these words spoken by the prophets when the foundation was being laid for rebuilding the temple, the house of Adonai Zebaot. For prior to that time, there... Uh, there were wages neither for people nor for animals. Moreover, it was unsafe for anyone to go out or come in because of the enemy. For I said all people, each against the other. But from now on, I will not 
treat the remnant of this people as I did before, says Adonai Zebot. Now they will sow in peace. The vine will give its fruit. The ground will yield its uh, will produce its yield. The sky will give its dew. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. House of Judah and house of Israel, just as you were formerly a curse among the nations, now I'll save you. You'll be a blessing. Don't be afraid. Take courage. For Adonai Zebot says, Just as I resolved to do you harm when your forefathers provoked me, Adonai Zebot says, And I did not relent, so now I resolve to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Don't be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. In your courts administer justice that is true and conducive to peace. Don't plot harm against each other. Don't love perjury. For all these are things that I hate, says Adonai. This word of Adonai Zebaot came to me. Adonai Zebaot said the fast days of the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months are to become times of joy, gladness, cheer for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Adonai Zebaot says in the future, peoples and inhabitants of many cities will come. The inhabitants of one city will travel to another and say, we must go to ask Adonai's favor and to consult Adonai Zebaot. I'll go too. Yes, many peoples and powerful nations will come to consult Adonai Zevaot in Jerusalem to ask for Adonai's favor. And Adonai Zevaot says, when a time comes, when that time comes, ten men will take hold, speaking all the languages of the nations, will grab hold of the cloak of a Jew and say, we want to go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Notice especially that final verse. Adonai Zevot says, When that time comes, ten men, a minyan, will take hold of all, uh, will take hold, speaking all the language of the, of the nations, meaning Gentile nations. They'll grab hold of the cloak of a Jew and say, We want to go with you because we've heard God is with you. Here we have what I call the circle of salvation. The torch of the redemption process of God began with the Hebrews. Then it transferred from them to the Gentiles. And then when that time comes, we're told, it transfers back to the Hebrews. Yeshua and Paul both explain and prophesy something called the age of the Gentiles. Zechariah describes what comes at the end of the Gentile age. Suddenly, we're told, Gentiles will start seeking after Jews to hear about God. And the trigger mechanism for all that to happen is for Israel to return from a long exile to return as a nation of Jews. Well, after 1900 years, Israel's been reborn. Jerusalem is back under Hebrew control. And Messianic synagogues filled with Jewish believers are springing up in increasing numbers. The Hebrew Roots movement 
is, expand, is expanding globally, yet it ha is happening with no central organization of any kind. It doesn't exist. It is greatly upsetting to the institutional church, to many institutional denominations, as some of their most fundamental doctrines are being challenged. See, these are all signs that the end of the time of the Gentiles is upon us. We're there. That you are here today or listening by other media is proof of it. Because the message you are hearing is not one that's born of 1800 years of man-made Gentile church doctrines. Itself a reflection of the earliest Roman church. It is not one that's based on the church replacing Israel as God's chosen. It's not one that says that God's law and his prophecy are dead and gone and nailed to the cross. The new covenant, hear me, the new covenant as predicted in Jeremiah 31 and fulfilled in the divine Christ was never about Yeshua coming to void the law, which he forcefully told us, in Matthew 5:17 through 20 rather it was about his sacrifice to save us from our sins and then the coming of the holy spirit to indwell us so that we could have a higher deeper and more spiritually correct devotion to it and of course somewhat like Yeshua's message at His first coming, the message that you hear from me and from others in the Hebrew roots and Messianic movements can be polarizing. There's not a lot of middle ground here. You can either reject it, and you can go back to the familiar traditions and doctrines of the institutional Roman church from which all Western Christianity has sprung, or you can accept it. And you can begin the challenging task of uh, recalibrating your biblical understanding of adjusting your life accordingly. A new era is upon us. The time of the fullness of the Gentiles. We're there. Therefore it falls to us to look closely at what we believe and to separate biblical truth from traditions and doctrines formed by systematic theologies. And then we're going to have to make some hard choices. So, we're going to examine now one of the more difficult doctrines of Christian systematic theology called millennialism. And this one has enormous effect not only on how we will interpret Daniel, but most of the New Testament as well. The term millennial means a thousand. In our context, it means a thousand years. It comes from a passage in the book of Revelation about the end times. You may want to follow with me. If you do, turn to Revelation 20. You can read along with me. We're going to read just eight verses, verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. Next, I saw an angel coming down from heaven who had the key to the abyss. 
with a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, Satan, the adversary, and chained him up for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss. He locked it. He sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were over. And after that, he has to be set free for a little while. Then I saw thrones. Those seated on them received authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for testifying about Yeshua, proclaiming the word of God. Also those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life. They ruled with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is anyone who has a part of the first resurrection. Over him the second death has no power. On the contrary, they will be priests of God and of the Messiah. They will rule with him for the thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, the adversary will be set free from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is as countless as the sand on the seashore. Well, if you've been around evangelical Christianity very much at all, you've heard a lot of talk about two things. The millennium and the rapture. And there's more than a little bit of confusion about these two events. First of all, we see four mentions of the millennium, a thousand year period of time, in Revelation 20. They're used to describe two critical things in the Bible that concerns the end times. First of all, it is the period of time between the resurrection of the righteous dead and the resurrection of the wicked dead. And second, it is the time duration of Satan's imprisonment. That's what we're told. Now, this seems to be straightforward enough. However, systematic theology has really worked over these verses and others to force them to harmonize with other of their denominational doctrines. A classic case of trying to pound a, squ a spiritual square peg into a doctrinal round hole. Last week, using my car as a system analogy, I said that when you use a systems approach to anything, you are forced to make some rigid choices and decisions. And as you go down the list of each interdependent component of the system, each choice about one component has a definite effect on the choices you can make for the next component. It always limits them. It's the nature of a system. For instance, if we elect to put the engine of our car, our make-believe car, in the rear, we can't also put the luggage compartment in the rear even if we prefer to have it there. And as the choices of each part or component of the system mount up, some of the choices we must make for the next component become very narrow or we have little choice at all. If I want a car to hold six people, I can't make it the size of a sports car. Nor can I give it only two doors. So you kind of get the idea. 
Thus some quite inventive approaches to defining just what goes on in this end times thousand year period of time have been created in order to make it work with a predetermined doctrinal system. And in order to make it work, even defining the term thousand years has had to be creative. Therefore, in some systematic theologies, we can't necessarily even label a thousand years as a period of time. That is, some will look at the words of Revelation 20 and say that a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years. Rather, it is just symbolic of an era. Or it's actually the name of an era and it doesn't have anything to do with a thousand years. In fact, it's a very flexible term to be used in whatever the world circumstances might be at any given time. And I think the best and quickest way for us to approach this is to simply compare and contrast the three primary competing theologies of millennialism which are called amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. There are variations of all of these. And I haven't got time to go into all of them. You wouldn't want me to anyway. But in the end, these three represent almost all of Christianity. And remember, depending on which one of these one accepts, it's going to have a substantial effect on how one interprets the book of Daniel. And by the way, I'm not advocating for or against any one of these, at least for the moment. Further, Various denominations will modify some aspect of these doctrines to suit them. So I'm only going to give you kind of what I would call a representative definition. Not an absolute definition of these. Premillennialism is usually thought of today as automatically part of a systematic theology called dispensationalism. This doctrine says that we are to interpret the scriptures literally and thus all promises made to David and to Abraham under the Old Covenant will be fulfilled literally in a future 1,000 year age usually called the Millennial Kingdom. However, included in this doctrine is that God has two plans of redemption. Plan A is for, the, is for Israel and Jewish people. Plan B is for Gentiles in the church. Thus, when there is a rapture of believers off of this earth, it's only going to be of the Gentile church. And it will occur at the beginning of a seven-year period of time called the tribulation. Therefore, the tribulation period is a future time to us today. And it is essentially a time for God to deal with Israel and the Jewish people, since the church will have been removed. And after the end of the seven-year tribulation, Christ will come, and those Jews who are converted to Christianity, well, they'll be allowed to live in the Millennial Kingdom. The raptured Gentile church will then return in glorified bodies and rule with Christ during that thousand-year period of time. During the millennium, there will be a physical temple, the law or something like it will again be in force and at the end of the thousand years there will be a great judgment when Satan and all who follow him will be cast 
into the lake of fire. And immediately thereafter, the current earth and heaven, meaning the universe, will be destroyed. And a new heaven and a new earth will be created from the elements. Now this view is expressed by the Schofield and Ryrie Bibles. It was made popular by Hal Lindsey and more recently by Tim LaHaye in his Left Behind series. Calvary Chapel, the Southern Baptist Convention generally ascribed to this doctrine and Dallas Theological Seminary is the leading dispensational premillennial institution in our country. Writers like Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, Jack Van Impe, they also maintain this, this viewpoint of theology. Next up, amillennialism. Now the A in amillennialism means no. Therefore the thousand years is a symbolic number and it expresses the time in between the first and second comings of Christ. Thus there is no separate or distinct era or period of a thousand years. This is historically the viewpoint of the Catholic, Presbyterian, and Lutheran churches. The Southern Baptist Convention has adopted some of the amillennial viewpoints because Calvin's teaching adopts some elements of amillennialism. And the idea is this that the kingdom of God on earth that is to occur during the millennium is present on earth now, even though it's invisible. Further, this doctrine states that all the promises of God given to David, Abraham, and to Israel have already been fulfilled by Christ. Thus, they are given over to the church in this present age. This, of course, is called classic replacement Theology. The church has replaced Israel. Further, this doctrine states that Satan is currently bound up, that the kingdom of God is already established, and that right now Satan is not free to deceive nations or people. Thus, at the end of our present age, usually called the church age, Christ returns in judgment and immediately a new heaven and a new earth replace the old heaven and the old earth. Satan is unbound just before Christ returns. There's an unprecedented time of evil worldwide and then at Christ's second coming all evil is destroyed once and for all. In addition to Calvin, Amillennialism's main advocates are R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, and Mike Horton. Now post-millennialism on the other hand, believes that the millennium is a definite period of a thousand years where there is universal love and peace and where righteousness reigns over all the earth. But this happens before Christ returns. And thus the determining factor for Christ returning is when the church can finally cause that to happen. The difference between post-millennialism and amillennialism doctrines is, is that while post sees a literal thousand year period of time, it also has a definite starting point at some point during this present age of ours. Amillennialism generally sees this entire period of the church age that we are in right now as the millennial age and it began with Christ's death. Thus, in post-millennialism, the church is destined 
to victory over Satan and over his forces. And so, the visible, tangible kingdom of God will be established on earth before Christ returns to claim it. Sometimes this is called the kingdom now doctrine. Then when Christ returns, Satan will be released. A great apostasy will happen. Gog and Magog will enter battle with the saints at Armageddon. And then the great white throne judgment happens whereupon there's a new heaven and a new earth. Classic post-millennialism is propounded by Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield. Some segments of the Presbyterian church have chosen this doctrine and it was the doctrine first practiced by the earliest appearance of the evangelical movement that began in the early 1900s. But it's the Pentecostal churches that tend to hang on to most of the doctrinal beliefs, not necessarily all, of post-millennialism. So, to sum it up, here you see the vast divergence of views about the end times and which denominations in general have adopted each of these viewpoints. So now you can begin to understand why Daniel, Revelation, and the end times can be viewed so differently depending on which church you might have been raised up in, which preacher you might have listened to, and what books about the end times have caught your fancy. I have no doubt that in what you heard today you'll recognize things that you've heard and perhaps believed but you've had no idea of their source or their context. All of this confusion is the result to one extent or another of taking the approach that we can and we must systemize God's word in order to understand it. Systematic theology. Well it's time it's overdue to take a different approach. An approach that does not seek to make God think like we think. That does not require mankind's logic and reason to dictate God's ordering of the universe. Doesn't take our reasoning, our logic for him to create his plan of redemption. It doesn't have to appear in His laws and commandments. When we abandon a systems approach, we finally give up on seeking to remake God into our own image. Now next week, I'm going to spend just a few minutes to summarize and review and then give you a little bit of historical context for Daniel and we'll open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1.